Jonathan White is Associate Professor of American Studies at Christopher Newport University and is the author of several books, including Abraham Lincoln and Treason in the Civil War, The Trials of John Merriman, and Emancipation, the Union Army, and the Re-Election of Abraham Lincoln, which that second book was a finalist for both the Lincoln Prize, the Jefferson Davis Prize, and was also recognized as best book in the Civil War Monitor. Uh, it was also the winner of the Abraham Lincoln Institute's 2015 Book Prize. John has published more than 75 articles, essays, and reviews. Uh, he is president of the Abraham Lincoln Institute. He serves on the board of directors of the Abraham Lincoln Association. You might notice a theme here. <laughs> and he is on the board of advisors of the John Now Center for Civil War History at the University of Virginia. He also um, is uh, uh, a participant at Ford's Theater on their advisory council. His most recent book, Midnight in America, Darkness, Sleep, and Dreams During the Civil War, was published by the University of North Carolina Press in March 2017. We're thrilled to have John with us today. Please join me in a warm Virginia Historical Society welcome. Thank you so much for having me here at VHS, and, and thank you for coming out on such a beautiful day. I first wanted to thank VHS for having me and also for supporting my research. I've had two Mellon fellowships here at VHS and in fact spent yesterday and then we'll spend this afternoon doing research upstairs in the library. It's just a wonderful collection and it's all over, here's a first plug, right? You can find a lot of good VHS stories in the book. I also wanted to do a shout out to one of my former students, Haley House, who's here somewhere, is now gainfully employed at VHS. I think she's been here for about two years and we at CNU are just so proud and thrilled that she's able to work here at the Virginia Historical Society. So I wanted to make sure to recognize her. Now, you all will have to forgive me. I'm actually a Pennsylvanian. I've been living in Virginia for about eight years now, but I am a Yankee. And one of my favorite moments of the Civil War is this one here, where Jefferson Davis is fleeing the Confederate White House in Richmond at the end of the Civil War. And Davis and his entourage made his way south. And as they were escaping down into the south, Jefferson's wife, Verena, had a prophetic dream. She dreamt that they would be captured somewhere in Georgia. And sure enough, a day or two after Verena Howell Davis had this dream, they were captured near Irwinville, Georgia. Now this is a very famous moment. Davis was captured and then sent to Fort Monroe. But newspapers had a field day with this moment because right before Davis was captured, Verena covered him with a shawl and attempted to get him away from the Union soldiers who were trying to find him. And she said to one of the soldiers, oh, this is my mother and he, she's very afraid of what's going on here and can I take her away from all this commotion? And one of the Union soldiers looked down and saw Davis's feet with their bigger feet with heel spurs and said, those aren't the boots of a woman and they lifted up the shawl and there was the Confederate president. Now, northern newspapers had a field day depicting Davis as a fugitive coward dressed in drag, and I'll show you a few of my favorites. Here you have the true story of the capture of Jefferson Davis. Jeff Davis caught at last, hoop skirts and southern chivalry. Capturing the responsible party. This was actually this was the frontispiece of a, of a memoir written by a Union prisoner of war at Andersonville. And for him, when people read his book, he wanted this to be the first thing that they saw. Here you have the so-called president in petticoats. 
uh, there's always terrible puns, Jeff's last shift. It was the 19th century after all. Or, worse pun, the chaste old lady of the Confederacy. You have the last ditch of the chivalry, Jeff Davis running out. I love this one. He's got his Confederate gold under his arm. These were some uh, other images of him, some showing him very feeble and vulnerable, like that on the left, others showing him very defiant on the right. Some show him in a, in a very vulnerable type of position like this, the head of the Confederacy on a new base. It even came out in songs. These are two songs. You had Jeff's double quick on the left, or you could dance to Jeff in petticoats on the right. I'm glad you Virginians find this funny, too. <laughs> Here on the left, you have Jeff Davis being uh, exhibited in a cage while John Brown is the one who's the hangman around him. And on the right, you have Jeff's last ditch. Now, my, my favorite one, I think, is this one here. I don't know, this is an older crowd here. I don't know if you've noticed when you walk around town, you see young girls walking around with words written on their rear ends. What they don't know is that Jeff Davis actually started this trend in 1865. Now, once Davis was brought up to Fort Monroe, he was put into this prison cell here. And in that prison cell, for the first four months, he faced inhumane sleep deprivation. There was a bright light that was kept on at all hours in his room. There were guards marching back and forth outside of his cell. And every two hours, they would have a changing of the guard, and they would slam this heavy iron gate that was, part, that was keeping him in the room. By September of 1865, Davis complained to his wife, Verena, that his loss of memory has created a morbid excitability, as well as, or I'm sorry, his loss of sleep has created a morbid excitability, as well as memory loss. But despite these hardships, Davis wanted his wife and children to know that he dreamed about them during those little bits of sleep that he got at night. He wrote to Verena, in dreams you have lately come to me, Often in my prayers, you and the children form a little group, spiritually assembled in our Heavenly Father's name. Indeed, despite the many emotional strains on Davis's mind, such as being indicted for treason and knowing that he had just led a failed revolution, Davis's dreams appear to have been mostly peaceful and pleasant. If I were a believer in dreams, he wrote to Verena, my days would be spent in reviewing the visions of the night. In the broken sleep which I get, you and the children frequently visit me. Little Polly comes oftenest, and usually with the gentle and thoughtful air of a woman. For Davis, seeing his family in dreams was a happy, pleasant comfort. But sometimes while sitting alone in prison, Davis's feelings of affection for his family overwhelmed him and made him afraid to dream. To avoid bad dreams, he kept from drinking tea or eating food in the evening, and he even would sit up late at night reading the dullest book he could find. Now, like her husband's dreams, Verena's dreams during this time of separation were also surprisingly quite pleasant and reassuring. God has greatly blessed me with dreams for the last three weeks, she wrote to Davis. When she did have bad dreams, she actually was even still able to use them to encourage her husband. She wrote to him, I had a queer dream some days ago. 
She dreamed that the United States had gone to war with England, she said, and indeed with the whole world, and that we were in Canada and desperately poor. In the dream, the British came to Davis and they offered him command of the English side of this war. But in this dream, Davis declined the position. After the, the Englishman departed from the room, Verena asked him why he turned it down. She wrote to him, she said, and you said I will never be goaded by poverty into performing the part of a Swiss or a Hessian. Verena felt so proud and happy to see that no circumstance could debase you. She then woke up and she appended this dream to a letter that she had written two days earlier. Sometimes these dreams strengthen me, comfort me, she concluded, and I forget for an hour that I am alone. The communication of dreams like these became a way for Verena to encourage Jefferson to live with resolve and not to break under pressure or to compromise his principles. Dream reporting also enabled Verena to commune with her husband and to remind him that she was with him in spirit, even if they could not be physically present. In earlier times, many of you may know, the, the Davis marriage was not a terribly happy one. They went through very difficult times. But now that the war was over, the couple wrote affectionately to one another, using dream reports as a source of comfort and consolation. Indeed, Verena told Jefferson, no bars or bolts can keep me from you in dreams. Now, despite these reassurances from his wife, Davis's health deteriorated rapidly during his imprisonment. His doctors even feared that he might die when the, the heat and humidity of a Virginia summer came to Hampton Roads. The New York World, a leading Democratic newspaper, likened Davis's treatment at Fort, uh, Fort Monroe to the ancient Roman treatment of torment by insomnia. It said, like that endured by Caligula, roaming through the vast halls of the Palace of the Caesars, night after night with bloodshot eyes, sleeplessness, and driven by sleeplessness to insanity. The editors of the world then asked their readers, how will future generations look at us if this is how we treat our captured prisoners? Now, Democratic papers like the, the World showed great sympathy for Davis. Republican papers, they interpreted his sleeplessness a little bit differently. Several times Mr. Davis has passed sleepless nights, reported the Philadelphia Press, caused, no doubt, by reason of his past misdeeds and crimes that cry to heaven for vengeance. In other words, Davis couldn't sleep because his conscience was racked with guilt. On July 7, 1866, Harper's Weekly printed this full-page cartoon by Thomas Nast entitled, Why He Cannot Sleep. And if you look at this image, you can see the message that they're trying to get across. Here you have a woman representing probably liberty, but who's almost like the ghost of Christmas past in Charles Dickens's A Christmas Carol. And she's directing Davis's attention to these Union soldiers and POWs who have died on the battlefield or in Confederate prisoner of war camps. Other images, let me show you another one here actually. There we go. Other images similarly showed Davis and his wife haunted by dreams or nightmares of execution for treason. This one on the, the bottom here is a little envelope, a patriotic cover, and it shows Mrs. Davis waking up from a horrible nightmare of Jeff being hung, and on, or hanged, I should say. And on the top right, you have Davis waking up on Christmas morning, seeing a hangman's noose next to him. 
Now, the difference between Davis's actual dreams, which were pleasant visitations with his family, and how these Northerners imagined his dreams, I think underscores the deep value that 19th century Americans placed in dreams and visions. These sorts of depictions in the popular press revealed the depth of emotional guilt that Northerners believed the ex-president ought to bear for the consequences of, or as a consequence for his leadership of the rebellion. Gone was the feminized dandy. They weren't going to depict him like a, a, a woman. Now they wanted him to be punished. They no longer lampooned him. They wanted him to suffer. If federal prosecutors couldn't get their act together and get him convicted in court, at least Northern public opinion could be satisfied to believe that Davis was tortured by his own guilty conscience and held accountable through his sleep and dreams. Nowhere was guilt more, feltly, more deeply felt than in a person's sleepless nights or tortured dreams. And for the time being, Northerners would have to satisfy themselves that this was the experience Jefferson Davis was having. Now, I should mention, if you've never been there, Jeff Davis's prison cell at Fort Monroe is just down 64 from here. It's about 20 minutes away from where I live. And I found that it is actually an excellent place for time out when my children misbehave. <laughs> when they're really bad, though, we go colonial on them. I also dress them up as Abraham Lincoln. I know they'll resent me someday, but for now they like it. Now I want to transition over to soldiers' dreams. Like Jefferson Davis, Union and Confederate soldiers dreamed more about home than about anything else. Usually these were pleasant dreams. Often they were comforting or romantic, but sometimes they focused on the mundane things that soldiers missed. I found a Wisconsin soldier who wrote to his mother from the pine woods of Georgia. He had just received a letter from her in which she described making cheese. And he wrote to her, I dreamed last night about the cheese which you wrote in your letter and how much I should like to taste of it. Unfortunately for soldiers like this, pleasant dreams of home could really lead to disappointment when they woke up. Frequently, soldiers dreamt about hugging or kissing their wives, and these dreams were really vivid. They really believed they were with their families. And when they would wake up, they would be so disappointed that the dream had only been a dream. I found one New York soldier who was so disappointed from waking up from one of these dreams. He was stationed in Baltimore, and he went into town and got drunk. That was the only way he could find to deal with this. As might be expected, feelings of guilt and deep-seated anxieties often materialized in dreams. The most common sin to appear in dreams that I found was marital infidelity. Young men on faraway battlefields feared that their wives or sweethearts might lose hope and fall into the arms of a sneaking coward who had stayed at home. Surprisingly, soldiers were remarkably candid about bringing up their fears of adultery in their letters. But to soften the blow of this sort of issue, they often situated it in a discussion of their dreams. Doing so enabled them to maintain, I think, a certain level of intimacy while also broaching a difficult subject. In September 1862, this guy here, New Hampshire surgeon William Child, told his wife that when he dreamed about her, she didn't say that she loved him right away. She seemed rather cool. But eventually, he said, you kissed me and you told me you loved me. 
A year and a half later, his insecurities still revealed themselves in his letters and his dreams. I cannot tell you how I desire to see you, he wrote in April 1864. You seem more dear to me than ever. I love, love you. I dream of you almost nightly. But Carrie wrote to him rather infrequently, and her letters were usually short and perfunctory. By the end of the war, he was feeling great trepidation about their marriage. He reflected on the fact that she had never seemed very passionate when they had been home together before the war. And as he thought about these things, an awful idea crept into his head that perhaps she might be in love with another man. It is little wonder that a vague word of a dream in one of Carrie's letters put Dr. Child on edge. You say you had a dream about me, he wrote to her in January 1864. Why did you not tell me all about it or not say nothing about it? You make me feel as though there was something very bad about me, or at least that you thought so. He then reiterated that he dreamed about her often and that they were always good and pleasant dreams too. Carrie never apparently revealed the content of her dream to Dr. Child. Two months later, he again implored her to tell him. Again, she refused. A year later, in January 1865, he was still tortured by this dream. He wrote, you mentioned that you once dreamed of me, an unpleasant dream, awful dream, but you would not tell it to me. Why not? You always tell me just enough to excite my curiosity, then leave me to wonder. Now, in case you're worried, I will tell you that their marriage did survive the war. He returned home and they remained married. She died about three years after the war. And then in one of those things that I think was more common in the 19th century than today, he married her sister. <laughs> now, other soldiers uh, had dreams that explicitly exposed fear of marital infidelity, abandonment, or other marital difficulties. This is Thomas Jefferson Hyatt and his wife, Mary. He served in the 126th Ohio Volunteers, and he wrote to his wife one day about very queer dreams he said that he had the night before. First, I dreamed that we had been married some years, and the time had run out, and we were about arranging another term. But then, I dreamed you had abandoned me and formed an alliance with Lieutenant Watson of this regiment. Now, at first, Captain Hyatt was okay with this new arrangement. He wrote because he said, as I supposed, I was free to go where I chose. You imagine what she thought when she got that. <laughs> but soon, he said, I began to feel very badly and could not think of the separation. In his dream, he said his wife seemed offish, and he grew jealous of how she looked at Lieutenant Watson. Eventually, he woke up and was very glad to find it was all a dream. Now, these kind of dreams were ubiquitous. In my research, I found soldiers from the North and the South who dreamt that their wives ignored them when they got home. Very often, this sort of dream resulted from lack of correspondence. I couldn't find a picture of this guy, Miles Butterfield. I did find his grave. Miles Butterfield was a soldier from Wisconsin, and he hadn't received a letter from his wife for about two months. And after this two-month period, he wrote to her a 12-page letter, much of which was about a very strange dream he had that he said he could not get out of his head. Butterfield dreamt that he had gotten out of the service and gone home, and when he found his wife, she refused to talk to him. 
Eventually, he learned that she did not intend to live with me anymore, he wrote, and that she wanted him to get all of his furniture out of the house. He pleaded with her, but it was all to no avail. He then went into town, and he ran into an old friend who said that he'd been living with Butterfield's wife for three weeks. And, Butterfield added, quote, that he was not the only one who had been with you. <laughs> now Butterfield felt even worse. In his dream, he told his wife, I can forgive all if we can go back and live together as before. But again, she rejected him, and she got on a train and left town. At this point, Butterfield could think of nothing but suicide. He actually went to the train station, laid down on the tracks, and he said, I, let, I was ready to let the cars run over me, for now I had nothing to live for. After several more pages of this thick description, he then said to his wife, please send me more letters. <laughs> Clearly, lack of communication from home was having a destructive effect on this soldier's psyche. Other soldiers had equally, if not more violent dreams about infidelity, also involving their wives cheating on their husbands with more than one man. This is William Hardy. He served in a Mississippi regiment during the Civil War. In September 1861, he sent a letter to his wife, Sally, that he dreamed about her and that when he got home, she received me coolly. He then watched her get into a buggy with a young man and leave in a gay and fastidious manner. He followed them and he saw them go into a party. He now saw her, he wrote, in a fine glee, entertained by two nice-looking gentlemen. Sally continued to ignore William, so that my heart sunk and tears gushed forth from my eyes. She chastised him for this behavior and then went and rejoined her two boyfriends. Now at this point, Hardy, he wrote, I became enraged and got my double barrel shotgun heavily loaded. And after killing both the young men, I drew a dagger and determined to terminate your life and my own with the same knife at the same time. But before he could execute this horrible deed, he awoke. Hardy wrote, my mind was contorted, my whole physical frame convulsed, and I almost crazy only after he had become convinced that it was a dream did he finally relax. And Hardy attributed this terrible dream to having heard of one of his comrades' wives cheating on him, and also he said, quote, being tired out uh, and worn down from a long and tedious drill. These sorts of dreams of infidelity, I think, reveal a remarkable level of honesty that existed between husbands and their wives who were so far apart during the war. I chose this image to show you. I don't know if you can make it out. Do you see the woman there? This is 19th century Photoshop. This soldier had a photo taken of him pretending to be asleep, and you can see the hoop skirt there. The photographer superimposed a vision of, of his wife there. And I think that that represents the kind of intimacy that persisted among soldiers and their wives even when they were so far apart and suffering from great anxiety and difficulty. Now, these dreamers may have simply been trying to compel their spouses to remain faithful through these sort of primitive attempts at, at reverse psychology, but I think something more than manipulation is going on in these letters between husbands and their wives. I think there's an irony here that as soldiers and their wives were experiencing severe doubts about their partner's faithfulness, they still felt close enough to write about it, even if it meant writing about it through their dreams. 
Now, of course, not all dreams were negative, and many of them were romantic, some of them full of fantasy, and not all of them were monogamous. This is a Confederate soldier, Alexander S. Paxton. He fought in the 4th Virginia Infantry, and he had a series of dreams. One night, he dreamed about visiting a Miss Sally. She was standing on the porch, he wrote. I cried out to Miss S. Here comes your sweetheart. She ran in the house, met me at the door. We went in and was having a nice time when I awoke, and it was all a dream. Two nights later, he dreamed of a different girl. Suddenly, Miss Kate opened the door and came in looking beautiful as an angel. I spoke to her. She congratulated me on being married. I told the miss she was mistaken, but if she's willing, I would be soon. Four days later, he dreamt that he was about to pop the question to a Miss Francis, and he wrote in his journal that he couldn't remember what her answer was. Now, most soldiers were modest, even shy, when describing these sorts of dreams to their, or romantic dreams to their wives and sweethearts. This is a Confederate surgeon, George W. Petty. He served in the 56th Georgia. He wrote to his wife, honey, I wish I could tell you what a dream I had of you last night. I will tell you about it when I get to see you. Oh, that I could realize such facts as that dream perpetrated. Dr. Child of New Hampshire was similarly vague in his descriptions. He told his wife, Carrie, you might, my dreams might cause you to laugh, perhaps even blush. I have concluded to tell you at another time if I should ever see you. Now, these guys were, were guarded in how they described their romantic dreams. Other, others were not so much. This is Union General Godfrey Weitzel. He wrote a very colorful letter to his fiance, fiance in 1864. I'll read you a little bit of it. I have pinched your picture and it does not holler. I have bitten it and it does not holler. I have kissed it and it does not return my kisses. I have hugged it and it does not return my hug. So just consider yourself pinched, bitten, hugged, and kissed. <laughs> I have been dreaming about you all last night. I was back home and had only 12 hours to stay. You and I sneaked away from the rest of the folks and went upstairs in that little room in the front of your house, and we had such a pleasant time. But alas, it was only a dream. For some soldiers, dreams, dreams like these actually led to wet dreams, which was actually considered a disability during the Civil War and grounds for a discharge from the Army. Uh, nope, sorry, no pun intended. A chaplain in the... <laughs> A chaplain in the 145th Pennsylvania took note of this happening among his regiment, writing that, quote, the men have been married for some years, and such are the pernicious effects of the early indulgences that now they frequently have nocturnal emissions, foul dreams, such as renders them unfit for service. Now, these soldiers may have believed that they had a legitimate disability, but other soldiers realized that they could feign wet dreams in order to get out of the service. I found a report by a team of army surgeons who found that three out of four patients under their, under their care who claimed to suffer from the disease known as spermatorrhea had actually produced manufactured evidence of the disorder. 
Now, unlike these soldiers, though, most soldiers saw romantic dreams of home as a welcome comfort. Some even believed that they could offer protection on the battlefield. I found a Georgia Confederate who believed that if he dreamed of his sweetheart before going into battle, he said, I will come out with the full, it is with the full relief that I will come out safe. Now, soldiers certainly did suffer from nightmares of battle, and I've got a number of these in my book. In fact, I have an entire chapter that I call Dreams of the Dying, and it focuses on soldiers who had premonitions or prophetic dreams that they would be killed on the battlefield. And I want to tell you about one of the nightmares that I found. This is Captain Henry T. Owen. He served in the 18th Virginia Infantry, and he wrote a letter to his wife in December 1863 telling her about a, a recurring dream he had about the Battle of Gettysburg. This is what he wrote. Standing amid immense, uh, an immense line of troops and looking off into the distance, he saw, quote, the dim outlines of lofty hills, broken rocks, and frightful precipices, which resembled Gettysburg. He and his men marched forward, fighting that great battle over again. But in his dream, something was different. A thin shadow kept placing itself between Owen and the Union soldiers who were amassed along Cemetery Ridge. No matter how Owen tried to get around this shadow, he just couldn't. It kept getting in front of him. Nobody else in his dream seemed to notice this shadow, which he said looked as thin as smoke. Finally, when the guns had ceased firing, the shadow spoke to him in biblical cadences. I am the angel that protected you, it said. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Captain Owen awoke from these dreams and burst into tears, wondering why he had received protection while so many of his comrades had died in Pickett's charge. Now, as powerful as this dream was, in my research, I found that more bad dreams seem to have been caused by domestic issues like concerns about marital fidelity or lack of correspondence than by the experience of combat. So great were these domestic travails that some soldiers actually had dreams about not getting letters from home. For soldiers, the most common experience appears to have been having pleasant dreams like this one dreams of home, feeling immense closeness to their families, and then waking up in sadness upon the realization that they had only just experienced a dream. Indeed, one Confederate soldier wrote from Johnson's Island Prison in Ohio, we lie down to rest at night to visit perhaps that beautiful and magical world of dreamland, which mocks us with its unattainable witcheries. In a very real way, Dreams of home and of family helped sustain these soldiers through four years of war, giving them a visual reminder of what and who they were fighting for. Now, I want to pause for a moment and show you a few images of how these sorts of dreams were depicted in popular culture. This is a Courier and Ives print. This is a newspaper image from Harper's Weekly that was published during the war. Here you have a patriotic cover. This was an envelope that a soldier might have used to send a letter home. And you can see the soldier dreaming of family. And then there's lines of a poem, the soldier's dream of home. Here's another patriotic cover, the soldier's dream. Here's one of a zouave. And then these also appeared in songs. Here's a song called The Soldier's Vision. And you can see the soldier dreaming with the, the dream of his family sort of emerging from the smoke of the fire. 
Here's one called the American Patriot's Dream. Very similar motif. This is one of my favorites. This is called Mother Kissed Me in My Dream. And this was about a soldier who was killed, a Union soldier who was killed at Antietam. And shortly before he died, he told someone that the night before the battle, he had had a dream of his mother coming and kissing him. Someone wrote it down, turned it into a song, and then this would be sung by soldiers, Union and Confederate. In fact, I found an instance during the Battle of Gettysburg where a group of New York soldiers were, were resting during the battle, and one of the soldiers sang this song to his comrades to help comfort them. Now, we often think about the sentimentality of the Civil War, the Victorian era, ending with the Civil War. The Civil War is the first great modern war, it's often said. What I found is that in popular depictions of dreams, these sorts of images persist into World War I. Here are three postcards. These are actually European, but showing little girls dreaming about their fathers in battle. They also had postcards during World War I. Here you see a, a woman dreaming about her sweetheart, and you also, uh, on the left and the right, on the right you see, or on the right you see them dreaming about promotion. She's dreaming about glory on the battlefield. On the left you see her dreaming about being reunited with him. And of course, soldiers during World War I were also depicted as wanting to see their families, their sweethearts in dreams, which you see here. And just like during the Civil War, these were also depicted in songs. What I found in my research is that it's only during World War II that you see a, a change in how dreams were depicted in popular culture. Dreams now would be used to sell things. So instead of dreaming about the girl, here's the guy using, dreaming about the pen he's using to write to the girl. Or you see here some World War II soldiers in a cargo plane up at the top. They're dreaming about riding in first class when the war is over. Greyhound bus line actually did a whole series of ads depicting soldiers of dreaming of coming home, getting on a bus with their families, and going off and touring the country. And this next one's my favorite. Of course, a soldier would dream about his wife at home, making things in the kitchen, having little smudges of food on her face, or maybe some soap from washing dishes. And this is called The Girl Who Shattered the Dream of Corporal Clark. He writes to her about these dreams he has, and she writes back and says, yeah, we're getting a GE dishwasher. I'm not doing that anymore. <laughs> Even camel cigarettes depicted people dreaming, soldiers dreaming about getting camels. Postcards were also produced during World War II, and the dreams are much more materialistic. Here you have an Eastern European soldier dreaming about money. Here you have an American GI dreaming about kicking Hitler in the tail. And of course, they would dream about sex. Here you have the drill sergeant saying, what do you mean, oh Mabel, get up? I mean, the, guy, the soldier's talking in his sleep. This one, you have a guy dreaming about this very voluptuous blonde, and the revelry is being sounded, and he says, this always happens to me. Right when he gets to the good part of his dream, he has to wake up. Here you have a World War II soldier being licked in the ear <laughs> by a pig, and he thinks it's Betty. <laughs> this guy's even dreaming of kissing the general's daughter. And of course, they could be very hot related to getting your feet burned by the sun. And why dream about one girl when you can dream about many? 
So here's the front of an American magazine published. It shows a soldier at the bottom dreaming about these women floating above him. And why dream about ordinary girls when you can dream about pinup girls? And why dream about one pinup girl when you can have three? And this one I love because you've got one who is serving as the human remote control, one who's bringing breakfast in bed, and one who's vacuuming. I mean, this is what <laughs> the soldier's dream is all about. Now, with all this talk about women, let me tell you a little bit about what I found about women's dreams during the Civil War. The dreams of women at home actually appear to have been much more terrifying than the dreams of soldiers on the battlefield. Southern women often dreamt about Yankee invaders, while Northern women often dreamt about going off to fight. Numerous women chronicled nightmares in their letters and diaries, dreams of combat, dreams of abandonment, dreams of infidelity, and of course, dreams of death. Amazingly, some women actually found comfort in bad dreams. In a strikingly bizarre letter by a woman named Emma Crutcher of Mississippi, she wrote to her husband about the, quote, maximized joy she felt when she dreamed that he had been wounded in battle and had his leg amputated. Imagine getting this letter from your wife. Quote, now, thought I, he will never leave me again. For he will be of no use in the army. And if I die, he will never marry again. For no one but me could love a lame man. He is mine now. Makes you wonder about the dynamics of their marriage. <laughs> Unlike Mrs. Crutcher, most women, I think, found sorrow in scary dreams. On the night before the Battle of Gettysburg in late June or early July 1863, Sarah Emery had a terrible nightmare. Her husband, Lieutenant Charles Emery, was serving in the 12th New Hampshire Infantry. In her dream, she heard three or four loud raps at the front door. She quietly went downstairs in her dream, and at the door stood the specter of Lieutenant Henry French, who you see on the, her husband's on the right, French is on the left here. French had been a childhood friend of her husband's, and they had gone off to fight together in the 12th New Hampshire. Lieutenant French silently and swiftly went past her and down the hall into a room. She was startled and followed him. When she made it into the room, she saw two open coffins. She walked up to the one coffin and found it empty. She went up to the other and saw Lieutenant French laying there dead. When she was about to leave the room, she looked at the empty coffin and she saw a small stream of blood coming out of the foot of the coffin. She interpreted this dream to mean that Lieutenant French would die very soon, but that her husband's time had not yet come. When Mrs. Emery awoke the next morning, she felt, she said, it was all so real and so little like a dream. A day or two later, word of Lieutenant French's death arrived in their village. A year later, in June 1864, her husband Charlie was mortally wounded not far from here at the Battle of Cold Harbor. Mrs. Emery made it to the hospital in Washington, D.C. just before he died. She later said this, Just as he breathed his last, a stream of blood ran, ran from the foot of his bed upon the floor, just as I, I had seen it run out of the foot of the empty coffin. And the realization of my vision was then and there sadly and solemnly consummated. 
Now, dreams like this, I think, give us an amazing window into the psychological and emotional experiences of Civil War Americans, both North and South. And these are just a few of the many examples, remarkable examples, that I was able to find into my research. In, in the book itself, I have more than 400 dreams of Civil War era Americans. Now, lest we conclude on a note that all sorts of dreams that they were having were negative or dark, I want to close by telling you about one incredible letter that I found from a Union veteran describing his post-war dreams. Colonel Henry Shippen Heidekoper served in the 150th Pennsylvania Volunteers, and he lost his right arm at Gettysburg on July 1st, 1863. In the immediate aftermath of his amputation, he often had, he would inadvertently try to use his arm, a sort of phantom feeling. He wrote, at home, I drove every day while regaining strength. When a gust of wind would blow my straw hat off my head, I would involuntarily try to catch it with my right hand. Eventually, these phantom feelings became less frequent, but his missing arm always came back to him in his dreams. In 1906, Heidekoper wrote a letter to a Philadelphia physician who was conducting research on the neurological effects of amputations. Here's a brief excerpt from the letter. I was 24 when I lost my arm and am now 67. Almost two thirds of my life has passed without the thought of the possible use of my right arm. And yet never have I dreamed once that I was not without two arms. And only last night I dreamt that I was holding up a piece of paper with two hands. When I ride or drive or climb to a limb of, cling to a limb of a tree or write in my dreams, I always have the use of both of my hands. I write often in my dreams, but always with the right hand I used over 40 years ago. To do this, I attempt to use the tendons which would hold and guide the pen. And he went on to describe how he would sometimes awake in pain because with his missing hand, he would cling so tightly to a pen that it would wake him up. Thus, he concluded, in my dreams, I remain a man with a perfect frame. But while awake, I never think of myself otherwise than as a one-handed being. And this after two-thirds of my life had fully accustomed me to being with one hand only. This is a remarkable letter, and I think it reveals several significant things about the dreams of aging Civil War veterans. Most notably, Heidekoper dreamed restorative dreams of a perfect body, one that he had not known for more than four decades. Despite the physical trauma that he had experienced during the war, his dreams took him back to peaceful times. Equally significant, his dreams were about the mundane. He held a newspaper, rode in a carriage or on horses, drove a plow, climbed a tree, wrote things down on paper. Incidentally, his letter was typed. All this, he said, after two-thirds of my life had fully accustomed me to being with one hand only. In his dreams, Heidekoper's body returned to a time before the war when peace had reigned and his body had been whole. Thank you. I think we have a few moments for questions. Yeah. Very interesting. Um, most of us are uh, familiar with dreams. 
uh, although it's unusual, very unusual to hear them put in some sort of historical context. Yeah. What led you to begin researching and writing about dreams? I'd like to think it came to me in a dream. <laughs> it didn't, though. I had the idea around 2008. One of my favorite books is Joseph J. Ellis's Founding Brothers. I don't know if any of you are familiar with that. It won the Pulitzer Prize around 2000. It's a wonderful history of the founding generation, the leaders of the founding generation. And in the book, he has several chapters that describe the friendship of John Adams and Thomas Jefferson. So during the revolution, these guys had been very close friends, but by the 1790s, they were terrible political enemies, hated one another. And in the early 19th century, after both of them were out of the presidency, there was a Philadelphia physician named Benjamin Rush. And Dr. Rush wanted to try to facilitate a reconciliation between Jefferson and Adams. And so he started writing to them. And one of the techniques that he used was he thought, I want to get them describing their dreams to each other. Rush was fascinated by dreams, and he thought maybe if he could get them writing to each other about that sort of intimate, those sort of intimate details of their subconscious, which they didn't have that word back then, I don't think, but maybe they could reconcile their friendship. And, and Rush was able to play an integral role in reconciling these two great American patriarchs. And around 2008, I've read Founding Brothers several times. I have it as a book on tape, actually, or on my iPod. No one uses tapes anymore. But I, I remember listening to it thinking, wouldn't it be incredible to write a history of dreams during the Civil War? And my initial thought was to try to write a narrative of the war through dreams. I very quickly realized that that would be impossible. And I ultimately ended up finding enough dreams that I was able to see patterns emerge. What were Northern women dreaming about? What were Union and Confederate soldiers dreaming about? And so I, I was able to then create thematic chapters that sort of capture the different patterns I found. So, it actually, so the book actually was born in the American Revolution. Yeah. I think you may have answered this. But does Freud's uh, book, Interpretation of Dreams, does that fit into that anywhere? Yeah, it's a great question. I was, I was immediately confronted with a problem that I would have to grapple with in writing this book, and that is, what would I do about psychology, psychological literature and theory? And I ultimately decided that I wasn't going to use psychological theories in the book. One, because it's just not my training. I, I just don't know the theories. I, I don't lay people, you know, when I have students, they don't come into my office and lay down on the couch. They, they tell me their problems, but they're sitting in a chair. Um, and I just decided I wasn't going to be, I didn't want to try to get into that. There are some historians who do what's known as psychohistory, where they try to psychoanalyze people. And from my perspective, these guys have been dead for 150 years. They left a very limited record. I didn't think I was, I was going to want to go there. And I know that some reviewers will read this and think, well, I should have done that. I, I give an example in the book of why I don't use psychological literature. I'll tell you about it briefly. So in 1698, there was a man in New England who had a dream about a black pot. And he wrote about it in his diary. And then he wrote in his diary that the next day he went out and he purchased a female slave. Now, in the 1960s, a historian found this journal, and he went, and then he found a dream book, which were these, like, hokey, made-up, you know, if you dream about losing a tooth, it means you're going to strike it rich, that sort of thing. He found a dream book from around 1702 or 1705, and in this dream book, it said that if you dreamt about a basin, 
It meant you were really thinking about a young maiden. And so he took this dream of a black pot, and then the guy bought a slave, and then he took this dream manual to a psychiatrist in the mid-1960s, and he said, you know, a basin's pretty close to a pot. Do you think this dream means he wants to have sex with black women? And the psychiatrist said, that sounds plausible. And so the historian wrote it. Now, maybe the guy did, maybe he didn't. I don't know what his intentions were, but to deduce from a dream, to try to, for a historian to try to read into a dream like that and take so much out of it that I just don't think is there, I think is, is almost, I've not said this before, and I, maybe I shouldn't when we're live streaming on Facebook, but is I think almost irresponsible for historians, and I know you weren't suggesting that I do that, um, but so I just decided, what I did was essentially what I call a common sense approach to dream interpretation. So either how did people interpret their own dreams, and then I would write about that, or what might these dreams tell us about the experiences of soldiers in a common sense sort of way? So I'll give you one example. I found an Arkansas soldier who was very politically aware. He would write about Lincoln in his letters. He was a Confederate soldier. And on January 10th, 1863, he sent a letter to his parents. And he said, I had a dream that I went to Aunt Polly's house, and there was a Negro there. And she gave him a seat at the table with a plate, and she wouldn't let me sit at the table. And, she's, and he describes his letter, or this dream in the letter, and then he says to his parents, I don't know what this dream means. Aunt Polly would never do that. But if you have any thoughts on what it means. Now, this guy was politically aware. January 10th, 1863 is nine days after Abraham Lincoln has issued the Emancipation Proclamation. Clearly, this Confederate soldier is thinking about what might be happening as the war goes on, as a major social revolution is going on. And in my mind, I'm not trying to interpret symbols in his dreams or but I do think that I could use a common sense approach and sort of deduce. He's concerned about the meaning of the war, and that's coming out in an interesting way through his sleep. So, yeah, there's one up here. There will be a mic in a second, I think. People often, maybe mostly, forget their dreams. Mm -hmm. Uh, how do you how are you able to account for the idea that uh, people may have been making up these dreams either on purpose just to have something to write about, yeah, or they were interpreting what they think they might have dreamt? Right, now, that's a great question. So there's two parts to the way I'll answer that. I think the one is I, except for in three instances in the book, three sections. I shied away from people 5, 10, 15, 20 years after the war saying, during the war, I had such and such dream. So I looked for letters or diaries that were generally written the next day. And dreams had a very meaningful role in 19th century America. And I think I, you can never know for sure if they're making up dreams, because we just, we just can't know. But I do think that there was a remarkable amount of honesty in the correspondence that existed. With Verena Davis during the war, she would write to Jefferson about good dreams that she had. When she had bad dreams about Jefferson, she would write to other people about them. And so you get the sense that these are real dreams because if they weren't, she wouldn't feel the need to report them to certain people and not to others. 
and I think she did that because she didn't want to report bad. She during the summer of 1862, she had a dream that Jefferson Davis was captured during the Peninsula Campaign right here in Richmond, and that someone lopped off his arm. Now she could have shared that dream with him, but it might have been demoralizing to him. And so she thought that's the sort of dream I'll share with a friend, but she would share positive dreams with him. The, the sections of the book where I, I look at post-war dream or post-war recollections of dreams, the main one is the chapter on dreams of the dying. These are where uh, soldiers came out of their tent one day, said, I'm going to be killed today. I had this dream. And then 30 years later, someone wrote it down. And in a, most of these came out in regimental histories, in fact. Now, I'm very upfront in the book, and I say we can never know with certainty whether or not the soldiers actually had these dreams or how many of them were real or not. The reality is if you're in wartime, you're probably going to have a lot of soldiers who have these dreams. And then the question becomes, because to your exact point, most people forget their dreams. I don't remember what I dreamt last night. I have no clue at this point, and it's only noon. It's 1230. So most of us forget our dreams. Why is it that those dreams were the ones that were remembered 30 years later. And, and in those cases, I think it has to do with soldiers finding meaning in the war. And whether or not those dreams were true, I suggest in the book, isn't even really the important, for those dreams, isn't really the important question. What, it, what is important is that they remembered or claimed to remember these sorts of I'm going to die today dreams and that when soldiers recounted them, it gave them a sense that there was something higher superintending their lives and their deaths. They, there was meaning. You, you know that there's meaning in your death. If you've been told by a supernatural power, you're going to die today. And so for a lot of soldiers, I think that they, they found meaning and comfort in dreams of, of eventual death. We have one last question. Okay. Uh, where do you find these dreams? Did these people write them and, and place these letters? Uh, in? Uh, where did they leave them? Yeah, most of the dreams in the book come from either letters, diaries, or journals written during the war. I have a number that I found here at VHS, um, some incredible dreams that I found here at VHS, in fact. And the, the best find I found uh, in terms of my research was uh, at... Washington and Lee University, that soldier Paxton I showed you who had the dreams about multiple women, he kept a dream journal for the first three or four months of 1864, where every day he would just wake up and it was for his own private use. He didn't share it with anyone, but he would just write down, last night I had this dream and this happened and this happened. But a lot of them, most of them are in letters and diaries, the, the sort of personal places that soldiers would go to write down how they were experiencing the war. And I, it was important to me to really stick to those kind of sources. I wanted things that were close to the time of the dream, hoping that they'd be most reliable as sources. So, well, thank you so much. I hope to see some of you out there.